podcast at gmail.com and log on to our Facebook page, Going in Circles Podcast. Here's your host, Chuck Simon. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Tuesday's live show of Going in Circles. One of the things that, um, when I set out to do this, one of the things that I really wanted to do was to, um, to give an outlet and, and kind of focus a spotlight on a lot of the people in the business that don't have a bunch of stake horses, don't have a big outfit, uh, don't have uh, fancy owners, but still are, are a big part of the game. And I think uh, that we, we don't do a great job of, of getting these people uh, in front of microphones or, or in, in, uh, in stories and, and things like that is most of the the media attention goes to the big races and the, the big meets and things, and, and, and that's understandable. But what I really wanted to do, at least on one of the days, was to focus on trying to um, introduce people uh, to a lot of these up-and-coming uh, trainers. Uh, not just trainers, I mean, today we're going to have trainers, but uh, jock agents, people who are uh, involved in the the business end of racing, um, all, all kinds of people that, that right now don't have a forum, but maybe they have a lot of uh, of good ideas, and, and I think it's important to get them uh, some exposure and, and also to hear what they have to say, to, to see what their view of the game looks like, not from uh, the top of a mountain like a trainer with triple crown type horses or or a leading trainer somewhere who gets a lot of exposure whose uh, voice is heard often but there's a, a lot to be said of uh, these these type of uh, trainers and I mean we all started out somewhere none of us started out with a hundred horses and uh, I think today show I kind of wanted to focus on on several of them that uh, I think, personally do a great job are, are excellent horsemen who uh, I've, I've witnessed from uh, afar and some a little <laughs> a little closer so these are people that uh, you're gonna see more of you're gonna see their names in the in the form and, and in the programs and uh, I think today's show is is going to be interesting in that we're going to learn about uh, some people that maybe uh, a few years from now, we won't need to talk to because they're going to have all the outlets they want because they're going to wind up with good horses or they're going to develop into uh, big big trainers and and um, we just hope that maybe uh, today we can we can hear from from people um, who have a little bit of a different uh, uh, a view of the game. They're they're, they're approaching it from um, an up and coming kind of hey how do we get to how do we get to where we want to go? Um, the four trainers that we're going to speak to today are Jason Barkley, Reeve McGahee, uh, Susan Ditter, and Emmett Jolly. And all of them have uh, just recently, Emmett's trained for a little bit longer than the others, but uh, they're all small outfits, they're all growing outfits, and they all have something to say. And their stories are, are interesting in that there's some commonalities to them, but but they're also uh, there, there's a lot of differences as well, and uh, and I think that that's uh, 
it's something that'll be interesting and and um I'm happy to uh to get them on here and and uh I want people to know who they are and uh that that's our our focus for today. Uh I'm still working on the website. Uh what we're going to do with the website is is have some interactive material so that you'll have a place to go when when we're talking about um a particular horse, maybe we'll be able to get their PPs. Uh if we're talking about um uh you know some a, a race maybe we'll be able to get the video of the race there's just things like that and uh pictures uh links to to things that we're talking about so that uh, I know on a podcast it's it's a it's a it's not a visual medium but when you add up a, a website that you might be listening to uh, I mean a lot of this is is uh, people are listening on uh via computer or their phone and i think just think that a, a a website is a natural fit for something like this i didn't really realize how computer illiterate i was because i'm on i'm on like week 2 and i'm sure that someone like my brother scott who understands coding and stuff could probably have done this in about 20 minutes but i'm learning and i'm figuring it out and uh hopefully hopefully we'll have that that up by next week. Uh we also are going to have some contests on uh once the website is is up. I've found some some interesting racing memorabilia from over the years that I've collected that I carry around the country with me and not really sure what I'm going to do with it. But um I thought, well, why not have some contests, have some interaction with people and uh kind of spread the wealth and and uh give out uh, prizes for for certain things. I don't exactly have a format yet figured out, but um and, and any advice on that would certainly be uh be welcome. And it was brought up to me by my friend the other day that I need a closing kind of statement, kind of like a signature closing for the the podcast and honestly it's been a lot harder than you would think coming up with one and and, and a couple people have have suggested uh some and and they're not bad but mostly they're they're takes on other people's things and um <laughs> some are a little too crude to use too but uh if anybody has any ideas that might be contest number 1 whoever can come up with a a closing line for me to 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 end the show with uh, Harvey Pack used to say may the horse be with you and throw the program um Ron Burgundy said say classy San Diego I need something and I have not been able to figure it out for myself so I'm asking for you guys to come up with something for me to use and I have in my possession a 90s era Saratoga tote bag giveaway that's never been used that's it's still in the, the original bag and the person that comes up with the closing statement or closing phrase that we use we will send you that that Saratoga tote bag and it's actually really nice the stuff the stuff they used to give out um I think it was nicer than some of the stuff they give out now. But um that is a uh, I mean it's 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 funny because you think, you know, how hard could it be, but 
it really is. It, it, the ones I've tried sound kind of awkward or kind of forced or they just sound like somebody else's. And uh, we'll see if anybody can, uh, can come up with one. We will reward you. Um, we have Jason Barkley coming up in a few minutes. I just wanted to say one thing. I did a podcast last night with my friend Barry Spears, who does the podcast with me every Monday night. And we kind of went all over the place. We talked about a lot of different things, including one of the things was the negativity on racing Twitter. And we tried to poke fun at a couple things. And there's a person, a particular person, that felt the need to knock us. He knocked me, but he was knocking Barry as well. This, though he, he didn't want to say that. And he sent me private messages basically telling me I, I should take some things down. And I, I had this conversation with this person who I don't know. And it comes to find out he didn't even listen to the podcast. So my advice is that I am perfectly willing to listen to any constructive criticism that anyone has. I want to make things as good as I can. I, I want to be a positive force. Though sometimes the guy that, that talks about the things that other people don't want to talk about doesn't look like a positive force, but sometimes it has to be said. That being said, I can take criticism. I trained horses for a long time, and I, and I was told many, many times what a shitty trainer I was. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I, I can't tell you how many times people said that rarely to my face because people don't seem to ever say anything to my face. But I can take the criticism. But I'm going to tell you this. If you're going to criticize us, at least listen to the show. Please, don't not listen to the show and criticize because that is just... I guess it's typical... In uh, in today's day and age of, of everyone being hypersensitive to things and uh, being critical, it it's <laughs> I laugh and, and it's really kind of sad that virtually every day on Facebook I see posts posted by people that are from satirical websites that are basically poking fun at the people that are putting these posts up as though they are real. And I think that says a lot about our society when people put things on their own Facebook page and your Facebook page or your Twitter page or whatever, that, that's yours. That, that's your um, statement to the world. And at the very least, read what you post so that we can um, <laughs> not be forced to make fun of you. And... Uh, there's some there's some uh, some guys on Twitter who are very very clever in the racing world, but um, we uh, it's it's just uh, if you're gonna listen to the podcast and criticize, go right ahead. I have no problem with it. But if you don't listen, I don't give a shit what you think. How's that? I think we may have our first guest on the line. Jason, are, are you here? Do we have him, Casey? Jason, welcome to the show. Yeah. Hello, on, Chuck. How are you? Good, good. How are you? Where, where are you calling us from today? 
Uh, I'm in Louisville. Okay. Well, Jason, what I wanted to do with this podcast, as I explained in the, in the beginning, was that um, I want to try to give some exposure and um, shed some light on, on guys like yourself who are up-and-coming young guys who are working hard and, and uh, you know, you don't have the, the best quality stock yet, but, but you're doing the best that you can with them. And, and uh, you know, a lot of times in this business, if you don't have a big stake horse, you don't get a whole lot of attention. So I thought that um, I've seen your work personally when you were assistant trainer for several top trainers, and uh, I, I actually believe enough in you to, to recommend you as a trainer for, uh, for, for people that ask me about the circuit you're on. So I thought you'd be a natural fit uh, to come on here and, and tell everybody a little bit uh, about yourself and, and your barn and, and uh, what's going on with you. Yeah, we you know, appreciate you know you you know shedding some light on you know myself and guys like me you know cause like you said a lot of us don't get the attention that maybe we uh, need and not necessarily we earned it all the way as some of those guys have but you know we put in we put in the effort every day and uh, you know we're trying to get there trying to get to the next step and uh, you know you just try to level up along the way um, you know a few years ago when I went on my own we had. I started with one horse, uh, then you you know you, you go to five and ten, and you just try to grow from there, and you do with it the best you can. And uh, they may be they may be five thousand dollar claimers that can't win five thousand dollar races, and you just you know you kind of grin and bear it. You try to find the circuits where they can compete, and uh, just go from there. <laughs> you know, it's funny that um, people think that. It's harder to train good horses, and I said, "No, no, you got it all backwards. It's harder to train bad horses because there's not a whole lot you can do with them. <laughs> the good horses, you just kind of point them in the right direction for the most part. But uh, it, it's, it's it's tough when you have a Absolutely. horse that that you know you try everything and nothing seems to work, and it's just like you know you're like, oh, well, this one. Uh, yeah, yeah. We're, we're already on the bottom. There's no more lesser. You know, there's no more drop. That those are, those are the really tough ones to train." Yeah, you start trying, you know, okay, well, dirt short didn't work, dirt route didn't work, blinkers didn't work, let's try the grass. Uh, you know, you try, you try to start throwing different things at them and see what works. And, uh, I mean, sometimes it pays off and you do find something that uh, maybe they do like. But uh, those are few and far between. Yeah, that's true. Hey, now, your dad was a trainer, so, so how did you, you know, what was – your childhood, like, uh, growing up as the son of a trainer? Yeah, you know, my dad, he's a trainer, he still trains, uh, you know, he trains on the Kentucky circuit year-round. Um, you know, I grew up at Ellis Park. My, you know, my dad had, you know, he always had a small stable. Uh, he got kind of bigger as I got older. But then, um, you know, the, uh, it was, it was fun being the son of a trainer. You know, my grandfather trained and, uh, you know, my great-grandfather trained, and her great-grandmother trained, and, you know, so it was kind of, you know, just grew up, and everybody, the whole family was always there, and always around, and we always had, you know, plenty of action, and, uh, you know, I was always working in the summers, and uh, working on the weekends, and working on the holidays, and, you know, you're always in the barn, and you just kind of, it becomes second nature, and, um, you know, I see guys now who maybe didn't grow up in it, and you start talking about stuff, and like they they understand it to a point, but I talk about it like I'm just you know like you talk about anything just normal, 
because you've seen it for, I mean, I'm 31 and I've seen it for 31 years, whereas maybe they've been around at 15 years and they're, you know, 40 years old and they just don't necessarily have the same grasp of it. Yeah, that, that's true. So for you, there was probably no doubt as to what uh, what line of work you were going to get into. Yeah, this was pretty much the direction I was headed from the start. Um, who the, Now, you, you started working for your dad. Uh, who did you go to work for after your dad? And, and did your dad encourage you to get into business, or was it just kind of assumed that you were going to do this because you, you, you had such an interest as, as a young kid? Uh, I think he would have been fine if I chose to do something else. I mean, he knows, you know, and unlike, you know, how tough it can be to, you know, have success, and then even when you have success, to you know, make make it a good living and, you know, and the stress that goes along with it. So I think he would have been fine if I did something else. I think my mom definitely would have been fine if I did something else. Um, you know, I was talking to her earlier today. <laughs> hey, you guys need to come home some night. I said, well, it's not the easiest thing to do when you're two hours away and you, you know, run a stable that works, you know, and you work seven days a week. Um, so I, I could say either way they would have been fine with it. Um, but I, I think... You know, it was something I always wanted to do, um, you know, even just growing up. And I like the challenge of it. You know, I like the horses. I like I like being around the horses. But I like the challenge and the puzzle of making it work, you know, pick, picking your right spot, you know, getting the horses to achieve their maximum ability. Just the whole, the whole thing from top to bottom, I just love the whole challenge of it. Uh, and then, you know, when I left, I went to the University of Louisville with, uh, and graduated there with the equine uh, business degree that they offer. And I started working for Nick Zito, and I was an assistant for him for a year. And then uh, I worked for Joe Sharp as an assistant and Wesley Ward. So, so you got a, a pretty good uh, diverse background in, in working for your dad and, and then those guys who all kind of uh, have, have different outfits a, you know, a little, a little bit of different outfit. I mean, I know Wesley's very concentrated on, on young horses, and um, I met you down at Gulfstream when you were working for who? You were working for uh, for Sharp, I think, when when you were there. Yeah, I believe, yeah, I was with Sharp when we met. Right, right. And that's when I realized that you were a Dolphin fan. I was a Dolphin fan, so we got to be miserable together. <sighs> yeah, we finally draft a quarterback, and now the season's in jeopardy. And, and now the guys are not even going to get. <laughs> I I tell you this: the dolphin uh, ticket reps call me every single day to try to get me to sell tickets, or to, excuse me, to buy tickets. I probably should try to sell tickets, but uh, yeah. they're trying. I, I I don't know what the situation is going to be, but uh, it's funny because you know I read an article today about uh, by someone, and, and, and I'm getting old, so my mind slips. But uh, talking about how other sports seem to really be struggling with the COVID issues that we all had to deal with over the last four or five months. Yet racing has really had uh, just a few blips uh, on the radar screen where, where they got shut down a little bit at Lone Star and then last weekend at Del Mar. But for the most part, once the tracks have got back up and running, we've been able to um, to keep them running. Uh, how has it affected you personally uh, other than just um, all the protocols that, that you have to go. I mean, have your owners backed off a little bit, uh, or, or are you are you guys still going full steam? Um, I would say at first everyone was a little timid. You know, I'm pretty heavy on the claim side of things, and I was at Oakland, which we kept running. 
So, um, you know, there were still horses to maybe try to claim and, you know, things of that nature. And you want, you know, you want to be aggressive because you expect to come out on the other side of it at some point. But at the same time, you don't want to claim a horse and then it be six months before it gets to race either. So a lot of my guys kind of backed off and I, I did. I missed on a claim that I really wanted, and I put him in front of about five people, and we just couldn't get it done because everyone kind of was in that same boat of, well, we may not race. So, you know, we didn't claim it, and that's and that's fine. But for the most part, I'd say everybody's back to full swing, and, you know, we just going right ahead. I'll say, like, the thing I tell people, like, well, what's different about being at the race? I think it feels like work. So there's no one there, you know. There's no, like, you know, you, you Normal day at the races, you, you know, you go, you run your horse, uh, you know, you get done with your day, maybe you go back over to the races, you hang out, you watch a couple of races, hang out with your friends, maybe talk to a couple owners or whatever, and it's kind of, you might kind of make a day of it. Well, now you just go, you go run your horse and you go home, and it's just, it just feels more like work, and, you know, because normally my days, they don't feel like work. You know, it's a lot of fun, and there's a lot of excitement around it, and right now it's just, you know, we're just kind of getting through it and uh, trying to do the best we can to put a product out there for everybody that that's as uh, good as, as we can do right now. And I know with the tracks opening up and, you know, some of the guys did back off the of horses for a little while and, uh, you know, some cereals aren't necessarily where they would have been normally. So I think there's less horses around to race right now to a point. Right. Uh, so, you know, we're getting smaller field sizes a little bit and then with more racetracks being open there's horses spread out to you know up here i mean we have horses in ohio indiana and kentucky i mean all the tracks are two hours from Louisville, so you can just kind of pick your spot uh which is makes it good for us because you might run against a six-horse field but it's bad for the betters because it's a six-horse field yeah exactly you know the, the one thing that the races that i've been at gulfstream when they've been running the thing that that kind of caught me was was how quiet it was you know, it's just kind of eerie. You almost, if if you're not paying attention, because they they don't have the track announcer being um, obviously Pete Isle is calling the race, but they're not they're not piping into the grandstand because there's you know just 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 the people from that race in there. So it's just kind of weird how how quiet everything is. It's just it's just very very eerie, I, I guess. Uh, so what is your main circuit? You you go you stay in Kentucky in the in the summertime, and um, and you said you went to Oaklawn last fall uh, last winter. Yeah, yeah, I've done Oaklawn the past three years now. Um, so I'm Kentucky up until the end of the year, and then I go to Oaklawn uh, this year. Uh, just basing it off of what Turfway ends up doing and what their purse structure looks like, we may split up for the winter and leave uh, you know ten to fifteen in Kentucky. Right. Uh, and they go to Oakland because you know Oakland without having the surf course uh, kind of makes it difficult because you kind of hem yourself into one, you know, one type of horse. You know, you're just looking dirt. Um, so hopefully, turf course stays open. You can leave the turf horses up here to run on the poly. Um, you know, they're putting a new poly down. I know they got the asphalt down about a week ago. So hopefully, the surface is good, and you, know, you can leave leave a handful up here, uh, leave some babies to get ready. I try to focus on having some two-year-olds ready early. As I did say, I worked for Wesley Ward for a little while, so we do try to play that game to an extent um, a little bit. So leave some of those up here. But, yeah, mainly Oakland and Kentucky the rest of the year. Yeah, I was talking on the podcast last night about the impact that Turfway may may have on the winter tracks 
in that some of the Kentucky guys may wind up leaving horses at Turfway, uh, especially like from the Florida aspect, you might see a lot of the horses, uh, the turf horses coming down here, or also the the, the horses that want to, they might be coming down to get a little rest, get a little time in the sun, and the horses that are going to run are going to stay at Turfway, depending, again, like you said, depending on what the, the purse structure actually is, because I know what they were talking about before all this these issues hit was was uh, was pretty pretty lucrative. Yeah, you know, last year the purses were pretty good, and the I mean the racing was it was getting better, and I think it, you know it could jump again this year purse wise and product wise overall. Uh, I think it just depends on what guys want to do and what owners want to do. I mean, some owners like being able to go to Gulfstream and watch the races and have their horses in Florida and they go see them now. Obviously right now not too many people are going to see any horses. So, uh, you know, if, if the purses are good and everybody can stay home for the winter, uh, I can see it being a very competitive meet. And uh, with that, I mean, it'll make the product better, but it also, the flip side, it'll strain some of those guys that have kind of depended on Turfway um, to kind of make their year and maybe, you know, kind of displaces them uh, to a point as well. So that's something that I think gets kind of looked over uh, is, yeah, the big barns will stick around, but what's that do to the smaller guys? And, uh, you know, growing up, being a smaller guy and growing up, you know, on a small circuit, you kind of, you know, you sympathize with that as well. Yeah, the the ripple effect of, of the changes in uh, the, the purse structure and, and – uh issues that they've had in california but also if you're going to go somewhere um away from home you certainly want to go somewhere where the purses are lucrative and and the expenses are 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 cheap and and that's the one thing that people people uh forget when they talk about trainers that we never forget is that uh the expenses vary wildly depending on, on where you are um you know down here in south florida the hay is, is ludicrously expensive, good hay. But you have to realize that it's coming from thousands of miles away because nothing, nothing. There, there's no good hay can be grown uh, in this area. So it's uh, the expenses. The expenses do matter, and especially to a smaller outfit uh, that, that can't, uh, you know, just raise their day rate uh, when they want. Uh, they have to kind of. Uh, I, I, I've been there. <laughs> So, um, how many horses are you currently carrying in your barn? Uh, we just actually got up to twenty nine uh, this this week. You know, we've I left Oakland with fourteen, so we've doubled in a couple months now. Uh, so that I mean, as you know, as you grow, the expenses go with that, and it's not necessarily the the monthly expenses of like the feed and the payroll and all that, but just the initial. You know, need new buckets, need more webbings, need more, uh, you know, saddles and equipment and this, that, and the other thing. So, that you know, that starts to tally up and uh, it starts to kind of take a toll on, you know, what you might have been rat-holing away for a rainy day. Um, but it's a good problem to have. And, you know, you just kind of buy it as needed and, and use it and grow and go from there. Uh, we had to branch out and send a little string down to Ellis because uh, I, I did run out of space up here in Louisville, so I've got... Six down there right now um, with a guy that I've known for a long time. Uh, he 
gallops and he's kind of just watching over the barn and then you know my dad's down there as well and then i go every weekend um for the races and training so kind of bounce back and forth and it's only two hours away so it's not not the end of the world it's not like you're spread across the country um as you're going but it is good to have that as an option that that's that's absolutely true i mean you're just a car ride away which is always comforting that was one of the tough things when when I had horses all over the place was that as soon as I got to New Orleans from Florida, something in Florida would happen. And, you know, that, that frustrating, like, ugh, you know, you can't just get in your car and get there. And, and you know, horses are, are, there's always a problem, no matter what. The more horses you have, the more problems you have. Yeah, I was actually thinking about that this morning. I was like, you know, it's just, and if they aren't necessarily major problems, but it's just, you know, you may come in and one's, you know, has a temperature, has a, you know, a foot abscess. There's things that happen that will go away, but, you know, when you had eight horses, a lot of days you came in and you just, you know, you trained your horses, you fed your horses, you did your work, and you went home because there weren't enough legs to have issues with. Um, but now, you know, you come in, and that's a lot of legs and a lot of mouths to feed, and so eventually something's going to go wrong, and you just learn how to kind of deal with it as you go. Yeah, try try to make sure those minor issues don't become major issues. Absolutely. Um, let me ask you this: You, you trained um, under Wesley and Joe Sharp, um, and your dad, and, and um, who was the other person? Uh, Zito. Oh, Nick Zito, of course. So you got really three kind of. I mean, Nick always focused on the the three year old kind of trail. Wesley was kind of a two year old uh, specialist, and and. Uh, and Joe Sharp was, was kind of more was more of a claiming outfit at that point, right? I mean, you guys uh, did yeah. a lot of claiming. Yeah, he was still, he was still growing then. So, d- tell me, like you develop your own style of training, and who, who's been the most influential? Um, I'm not saying you know, pick names, but like what what did you pick up from from that you find yourself uh, emulating? And, and uh, like we always do different things. I mean, we work for trainers, and and everybody has their own opinions about things. And and you know, the truth is that. Um, uh, you know, life uh, it, it evolves, and horses evolve, and uh, sometimes you work with really good horses, and, and you can't you can't train them the way you would train a, a, right. a cheap horse. So, tell me a little bit about your philosophy with training, and and what's what's your comfort zone? I mean, do you have a do you like fillies? Would you rather have turf horses or, or, or you know sprinters? Just what's your preference? Yeah, uh, I'd say like my my preference is definitely geldings. <laughs> they're just easy keepers for the most part. You know, uh, they're not they don't get too hot, and uh, you know, fillies they just they can be fickle from time to time. I mean, a gelding can be too, but you know, you get an honest gelding, and look, they're just gonna try for you. Um, if you look at my stats, you would say I'm a I'm a dirt trainer only. Uh, my turf my turf record is not the greatest, but a lot of that comes, like I said earlier, with having some cheaper horses. You just try different things, and you try them on the grass, so it's a little skewed. Uh, but I do like dirt, dirt horses, and dirt training, and I, I just like this. You know, I like the speed aspect of it. And I know American racing kind of gets a gets a dirty look when people talk about all we do is train for speed. But uh, you know, a good speed horse on a dirt track is a it'll go a long it can go a long way for you. Um. But I'd say as far as who I learned the most from, or what I learned, not, I guess not the most from, but what I kind of learned from everybody was, like, I'll tell people, you know, 
tell this day, I think my dad is one of the best horsemen I ever worked with. And, um, you know, I learned from him, it was mainly, you know, every horse is different. And when you grow up in those smaller barns with cheaper horses and whatnot, you have to learn that you can't treat them all the same. You go, hey, go gallop a mile and a quarter today and then do it again tomorrow or the next day. You know, you have to do different things with them, uh, find out what works for them. You know, maybe, you know, a ring bit and a D bit is not all you need. And you got to, you know, try some different different equipment, you know, just different things that work for them. And I think, you know, you learn the individual, you know, learn that they're all an individual. And I think learning that first helps me even when I did go work for the big barns because you can kind of inject that into the that system a little bit. As the assistant, you can kind of, you know, you start to pick up on things. Okay, this horse, you know, a lot of these horses, they take to the, you know, most horses will take to the just, hey, you know, here's the routine, we go through it. But if you're, you know, if you're watching, you're paying attention, you can kind of pick up on the horses that maybe need a little individual uh, schedule. And if you change it up a little bit, you can get a little more out of them. Sure. When, uh, um, when, when you were an assistant, um, you got a lot of, uh, I know that when, when I, you were at Gulfstream with Joe Sharp, Joe was literally never there. And, um, you know, you, you had a lot of, uh, uh, responsibility for you, you know, on your own. Uh, do you think that played a part in, you know, cause what you went on your own, what you were 27? Yeah. So, you, you know, I think, do you think that responsibility of, of being somewhere sort of training the horses for your boss, uh, do you think that kind of gave you a, a little bit of a, a leg up being that you had grown up in it and, and then you had had, uh, you know, the the responsibility of, of, of yeah, being in charge? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, like that freedom of, you know, you know, you're kind of training the horses. And like Joe and I, we talk you know, every day about the horses and this, that, and the other thing. But when you get the, not only, like, you get the freedom to kind of do it yourself, but you also, you know, someone is trusting you to do it yourself. Um, you know, it's kind of like a, like a, like a rough draft. You know, you get to go out there and do it and kind of make mistakes on their dollar uh, a little bit, you know, and you kind of learn from those. But it definitely, you know, when you think back and say, well, you know, we went to Gulfstream, and I think we wanted about 26% that winter, and it's, you know, 25, 26%. You go down there, if you can, you know, we did that. Well, if I can do that there with those horses, if I can get horses of a similar quality, at least you know you know how to win races, and, you know, you know those things. And But it definitely helps you um, in the long run. You know, you get that, gives you that leg up, but it also gives you that confidence in yourself to go do it. Let me ask you this question. When you stepped over the line from assistant to head trainer, what was the biggest change? What was the biggest – what surprised you the most that you thought may have not been a big a deal as it turned out to be? Um, probably just the amount of time I would spend on things not at the barn. Business part. Uh, you know, cause like when I get home, you know, the day just – you know, the day's just kind of starting when you get done at the barn. Uh, you know, you've got training charts, condition books, you know, update the owners. And, I, and I'm pretty, I'm really big on keeping my owners in the loop as to what's happening. And, um, you know, you know, I try to send out an email, you know, every week to 10 days about their horse and, you know, shoot a video. And, you know, so I do a little, little video editing and things of that nature. So there's just a lot. 
a lot that I try to do outside of the barn. So I think for me, putting in that much, that effort and that work makes it longer. Yeah, I've seen some of the videos you do, and and it's it's a good idea. I mean, it it uh, keeps your name out there, and and like you said, uh, gives the owner something to, to look at because. I remember one time telling one, an owner who, who kind of wanted me to call him every day about his horse. And I finally told him, I said, listen, there just isn't that much to say on a day-to-day basis. And usually when there is, it's bad. It's, you know, your horse is sick or your horse has got hives or your horse is lame or your horse threw a shoe and now, you know, it's got a bruised foot. I mean, that's the one thing is that, you know, there's often the, the the no news is is good news but uh i, I like you know the the fact that you you put out um you know some things on social media which i mean it it's uh it's a, it, it's not hard to do and and more and more guys are doing it but uh but no you know like what you've put out that i've seen it, it it's been it's been good and uh you know it's it takes time though i mean that's the other thing is is it does take time and uh that that's the one thing that when when i went from being an assistant to being a trainer was that i spent all my time when I was an assistant you got to go talk to the accountant and you got to file papers you got to do all that other crap and and that that's one of the things that that I, that I hated doing god I, I, I would just I, I would have killed to just be able to work with the horses I mean sometimes even the people you know the people aren't uh, the help situation uh, you know in, in Kentucky never seemed as bad as it was in some other places uh have you guys had any issues with with uh with getting help there considering the the virus protocols and everything uh no we've been pretty lucky i've got a pretty solid crew of guys um and everybody that's working for me now came with me from oakland and uh you know we've added some more as we go and you know i just try to you know you have a good reputation as being a good boss and, and he am still and I, I say this and it, it sounds bad but as trainers get older I think they forget what it's like to be the guy that was in the barn all day yeah. um, so if you, if you can take it easy on them and understand that they're probably doing their best and uh, you know it's a lot of work to do that uh, you know it'll It'll go. It'll go further for you. They're going to end up working harder for you. Sure. But no I doubt. mean, I just know. I mean, I worked in barns where you know I wasn't an assistant and I wasn't working for my dad. Just you know, and you would, you know, guys would, you know, some guys were tougher than other guys, and and you know, I think they just forget what it is to be the day to day guy. You know, whether it's the assistant that's there all the time or or the hot walker that's you know getting up seven days a week to come turn left for four hours i mean it, it, it gets to be a lot and you know if you treat them if you can treat them fairly and treat them right and uh you know they're going to work harder for you so if you can you know do that that it ends up you know that gets around you know guys they want to work for you you know guys will come by and ask if you need if you need help and, and it makes it easier when you do need help yeah no doubt and then, you know when you expand you're only as good as your help in some in some respects. So it, it's it's a good reputation to have someone who's good to work for. So I agree with you there. Um, looking kind of from a, a global view, where do you see yourself five to ten years from now? Like, what are your goals? Where where do you want to be? Is the circuit you're on the circuit you want to maintain? Um, I, I mean, we all know that things change so rapidly in this world nowadays. We we don't know what's going to happen and 
from from hell, not a month, day to day sometimes. But you know, like, what what is your goal outside of you know winning the Derby or something like that? Like, what what size stable do you feel comfortable having? Do you want to get to have uh, a you know triple digit horses or, or you know what what do you what are you, what's your thoughts on that? I mean, I've I've always said like I think a hundred is a good number. Um, I don't think I'd be scared to go past that number if it became uh, possible. Uh, like I think, and, and you can probably you know agree with this that you have to get big in order to scale back to getting the right horses. Um, you, know, you can't, you know, if a guy calls you and says, "Hey, I got five for you to take," and you know. You know, two constitutions and American Pharaoh, and then you know, two Iowa breads. Well, you kind of got to take the Iowa breads too, um, to a point. You know, you can't just tell them, well, you know, I want these. You know, when you're growing, you can't tell a guy, well, I'll take these three, but you know, you can figure out the other two, right, right, on your own. You, so you have to take take them all and then sort through it, and then and go from there. And I think, and I think you get a lot of respect for that, and guys. You know, they're willing to work with you if you're willing to work with them. And so I think if I could get to 100 and, you know, you go from there and try to stay as much on the Kentucky circuit as possible with it, um, I don't really have the the desire to be on the New York circuit. Um, I know people have wanted to be there, but now people are wanting to get away from there. Um, I would probably probably be more apt to go like if I split if I got big and split I'd say I would move more towards the Midwest um, and go you know use Kentucky as kind of my main circuit and then branch off into like the Prairie Meadows, Canterbury Remington type circuit and uh, you know because basically all of that just would reconvene down at Oakland and you can kind of go from there each direction um, back up to Kentucky. Um, so, you know, I think, I think that's kind of where I am. And I've always, I think I'll always be a guy that, you know, even if I do grow to have, you know, derby winners, I'll still have 10 claimers in the barn. And just because I like it, I like the action. I like the challenge of it. I don't think it's, I think some people think it's, it's you know kind of beneath them to be out there claiming horses every day, and I think it's I think it's fun. Um, so I just like the challenge of it. So hopefully, you know, we just keep going from there. And you know, I wouldn't. I know I know Asmussen's big goal is to be to have the most wins ever, and uh, I'm not saying I'll ever get there, but I sure would like to take a run at it. <laughs> He, 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 I don't know if he has the most wins ever, but he's got to be awful close, doesn't he? No, I, I, I know that's his goal, I think, is one of his goals is to have the most wins ever. Yeah. I know he's not there yet. I, I know, I think Dale Baird still holds that record. But uh. I, I tell you one thing about Steve, it, it's it's amazing. I was sitting with him at Saratoga maybe six, seven years ago, and we were just talking about something, I don't know, I, I can't remember what it was, and um, he starts listing the horses he claimed off me. And some of them were eight, nine, ten, twelve years ago. And and this guy that, 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 that makes you know a couple thousand starts a year, he's got, God, I don't know, maybe four hundred horses <laughs> under his care at any given time. And and he's got that photographic mind where he can actually remember. He's like, yeah, I claimed this horse off you. I mean, I I've trained, uh, you know, 
three percent of the number that he's had, and and I could hardly remember some of those horses. And 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 that's the thing is, uh, you got to work really hard. To, you know, people don't uh, underestimate a little bit um, how hard Steve works, and just the travel alone has got to be you know monumentally tough. I, I when I started training was before nine eleven. And you could literally, if you didn't have bags, you, you could get to the airport 30 minutes before the flight at some airports and make right. it and, and not have any issues. And now, you know, you got you got two hours and some some places, um, you know, you're lucky. You're lucky if if uh, if you get in based up, you know, it's just it's just not the same. And the, the travel alone is is uh, is hard. And, and I, I tell you one thing that he does um, just entering the horses alone at all these tracks it's just uh <laughs> it's kind of an amazing feat uh there, there's a guy in, in in the trotters uh, a guy named ron burke who's who's similar to steve and he's got 17 trailers 17 <laughs> and they're racing horses all over the place you know and just the amount of coordination i, I know what it was like when i had 70 horses I, I was running around like a chicken with my head cut off and you know, just trying to get the the calls lined up with the jockeys and get the works lined up and get the owners licensed and all all the things that um, all all the non glorious things that <laughs> the trainers do and and that was with uh, you know a fraction of the amount of horses that that uh, that Steve has. It's uh, it's really a it's kind of an amazing feat. But um, well, it's good to have goals, and uh, I hope you do get there. Yeah, you know, hopefully we get there and we'll just, you know, keep plugging away until we do. But, um, you know, it's been, we've had a good start to the Ellis meet. Uh, you know, I got a couple that run this weekend and, you know, it's fun to go home and win. You know, I grew up 10 minutes from there. So, uh, you know, to go home and win and, and I'm mean, right now, obviously we don't get to do it in front of too much of the family, but, um, you know, my daddy's out there training, so he's always around. So it's nice to go, be able to go there and do that. Jason, listen, I appreciate you giving uh, us some time today, and um, good luck with with the the uh, the barn, and um, keep on keeping on. And if you need anything, you know where to find us. Give me a call. Absolutely. Thank you, Chuck. All right. Thank you. That was Jason Barkley, who's well on his way. He started with one. He's up to 30, and he's trying to get to 100. So... We are now waiting on... Uh, do we have Reeve? We have uh, with us... Um, Hello? Reeve McGahee. Reeve. Hey, how are you? Welcome to the show. Thanks. How, how, uh, how'd you run today? Uh, no good today. No good. Well, that happens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um... You've kind of grown up in this game, so, I mean, my first natural question would be, how did you get into horse racing? Um, but for you, did you really have much of a choice? Yeah, I had I had the option if I didn't want to, but I grew up kind of uh, really starting out when I was younger, going to the races with my mom uh, up the river down the Turfway and around Kentucky. And then whenever I'd go visit my dad, going to the barn and the races with him. So, uh, and then uh, my uncle was training horses around here too, and my stepdad was on the racer. So, kind of grew up 
Who who was who was your uncle? Charles Lepresti. Oh, Charlie Lepresti of Wise Dan fame. You know, it's funny. I, I remember when your dad wasn't Shug, when he was still Claude. <laughs> I, 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 I'm kind of aging myself here, but um, I remember when he first started coming to Saratoga and he was training for Loblolly. And I, I remember the first horse that I remember thinking, man, this guy's pretty good, was a, a filly named Classy Kathy, won the test. Yeah, and, yeah uh, I've heard plenty about it. And he had uh, another horse. Who, who's kind of been forgotten over the years, uh, a horse named Van Landingham, yeah. who, who was a really, really good horse, who, who was a graded winner on, on on both surfaces. And uh, it's funny because some people are born before their time and, and some horses were born before their time. Van Landingham was born these days with the amount of turf racing and dirt racing we have. Uh, that God, there's, there's no telling. He, he would be an absolute superstar. But um, I think yeah. that, that was pre- he was probably racing before you were born, right? Yeah, Van Landingham was a little bit before I was born. He's early '80s. I was born in '89, but uh, I've heard plenty of stories and <laughs> watched replays, stuff like that. Yeah, he's kind of a forgotten about horse. He was uh, he was a really good one. Yeah, he, he he sure was. It's funny your dad is remembered, you know, for for all the classic uh, horses he's had and Easy Goer and. And um, inside information, you know, personal engine. But uh, Van Landingham was one that, that uh, it always sticks in my mind. And uh, like I said, it was before you were even born, which makes me feel really old. <laughs> uh, so, did you, uh, you went to school? Um, you, you Did you graduate from, uh, you went to the University of Kentucky? I went to UK. I, I didn't graduate. I started, uh, I kind of started working on the racetrack and, I uh, got to the point where I just like doing that full time. That's what I was more interested in. So, uh, yeah. My parents were a little reluctant, but finally they just kind of accepted that's what I wanted to do, and I was supportive of that. Did, did, I mean, did your mom and, and, and your dad, did they encourage you to get in, in, involved as a trainer? Or, I mean, they both know how difficult it, it can be, or did they kind of let you make your own choices? Uh, they, they let me make my own choice. I mean, I wouldn't, they certainly didn't encourage it. I mean, they never discouraged me and said, don't do that. But uh, they also, like, they never made it seem, I mean, they, they were realistic about, you know, if you want to do this, it's not going to be easy, but uh, we'll support you if you want to do it. But uh, it's sort of that kind of thing. Where, where are you currently based out of? Keeneland. You have horses at Keeneland? Uh, uh, how many horses are, uh, do you have right now? Fourteen. You have uh, you just won a race, right, Ellis Park? Yeah, we won one on Saturday at Ellis. What kind of race was? What kind of was a two-year-old yeah. race? Two-year-old made special one. Uh, who was uh, Miles Grass? Who was that horse by? He's by Union Rags. Union Rags for for what was? Uh, who's the owner? Joe Allen. Joe. Okay, great. So, um, who's your biggest owner at the current time? Uh, I have. I guess probably Joe Allen. I have a couple for him, and then I have a couple for Andrew Rosen, and both of them I kind of have a couple of, uh, waiting to come in, so they probably have the majority of it. Who? Um, so tell me this: who uh, who did who else did you work for outside of your dad? When I first started working on the racetrack, I started working summers for Owen Hardy. He had a string at 
uh, in Kentucky for the summer, starting from April until they went to Saratoga. So I started working for him because uh, senior year of high school, we had to do a senior internship for our last like six weeks of the school year. So I, I did it there, and I just continued on through the summer. And uh, even then, when I went to college, I'd work summers for him until I finally started working kind of full-time January of one winter, and uh, I carried that on for about six months, and they left to go to Saratoga, and I started working for my uncle then, Charlie, for, uh, that lasted for about five years, and uh, and I worked for my dad for about five years. Did uh, did Charlie have Wise Dan when you were working there? Yeah, he was, uh, when I started there, Wise Dan was in, going into the summer of his four-year-old year. He just won the firecracker when it was firecracker at uh, Churchill, and then, uh, then he kind of got on his roll. Yeah, he, he was uh, he was some horse. It's funny, you know, you talk yeah. about horses that are, that are kind of sometimes get forgotten, and, and I mean, people, it was, wasn't that long ago, and people kind of don't bring his name up when they're talking about the great horses of the, the past decade or so, but he certainly was... Uh, he he had to be in, up in the top two or three. That's especially for for grass horses. Yeah, I mean, for consistent as he was for almost four years, so uh, he's obviously talented. He won a state going three quarters as a three year old against older horses, and only got beat two lengths in the Breeders' Cup Sprint as a three year old in the dirt, and then to go on and do what he did, long on the dirt, long on the grass, and just a good horse, no matter what surface or distance you put him at. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. But uh, yeah, they, they don't. Those those types don't come along that uh, that can do kind of anything. They're just they just don't come along these days. Everyone seems like they're a specialist nowadays. Horses do one thing, and a lot of them do one thing really good. But there's not a lot of them that can that can sprint and can can go longer on on both surfaces. And that was no. really a thing. Something yeah. that he was really good at. Um, so you went to work for your dad. Was was he? Do you think he was tougher on you than you would have normally been on on, on a on someone that wasn't his son, or did he treat you pretty much the same as, as everyone else? No, I think he treated me pretty much the same as everyone else. I don't think he was any easier, any tougher. I think it was about the same. You know, your your dad's a guy that I have a lot of respect for. It actually. He um, he was one of the trainers that when I went for my my trainer's license. Um, I don't know what I don't know how it goes now, but back then you had to get three trainers to sign for you in order uh-huh. to be uh, to get a, a, you know your trainer's license the first time. And and uh, I, I had Alan Jerkins, Bill Mott, and and, and Shug McGee who were uh, were my three trainers to sign. I said, man, I, I wish I had that piece of paper still. <laughs> but um, yeah. you know, one of the highlights of my of uh, and and I don't want listen. I don't want to just talk about your dad. But one of the highlights of uh, my winter was getting to spend some time with him, talking about uh, you know some of the some of the glory days, you know, some of the horses uh, of, of 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 the past. And uh, it's something I, I believe that the business doesn't do a great job in, in keeping a lot of those names alive. But uh, but uh, no, I, I did appreciate uh, the time that we we got to spend a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit of time we got to spend this this winter. Uh, I, I didn't like it when we had the flood, but uh, you know things yeah. things happen. That that was yeah, it. no, 
that was flood this year was pretty bad, but it's kind of a learning experience. Once you kind of go through it now, next time something else like that happens again, then kind of know how to handle it. Yeah, you're you're pre- you're prepared to handle a, an overnight flood. <laughs> yeah. <exactly. laughs> Uh, I got the call at 5 o'clock. We have a big problem at Gulfstream. It's flooded. I was like, what do you mean it's flooded? It's flooded. And I really didn't understand until I got there, and I was like, oh, my God. You, your, your guys' horses were, were up to their knees or past their knees. Yeah, we were. Yeah, that wasn't much fun. I, I was driving in, and uh, I don't know, like 4.30 or so, whatever it normally is. And uh, I noticed when it, there's some pretty deep spots on the road I was driving into, and I knew we'd gotten a big storm. I kind of woke up for a bit, briefly, but then I fell right back to sleep. But when I came out that morning, I was like, hmm, uh, must have got a lot of rain. And then uh, I pulled into Gulfstream the first time, and I took a left by the Pegasus, and I looked over there, and there's a truck the same size as me just floating in the parking lot. <laughs> so I was like, well, I'm not going to be able to get in here. So I went around to the back, and it was only really only deeper there. So, yeah, and then we had to go and park and Obviously, it's still pitch black out, and wading through waist-high water to try to get the barn and check on the horses. And really, for the most part, they were all pretty good about it. I mean, they were kind of just all standing at the front of the stall eating hay. <laughs> yeah, it, it was uh, it, it was it was a bizarre it was a bizarre uh, a bizarre morning for sure. Um, now, you started on your own this uh, was it is it January February? In January, yeah, we went to. Oakland around the middle of January. So, what is your circuit planning on? Uh, you know, what are you planning on uh, on your circuit being um, as of now? I mean, I know that you know with the COVID issues that things have kind of forced people's hands uh, on where they can go. But um, what's your plan? Yeah, I'm just kind of waiting to see how the rest of the year goes. Next couple months with some of the younger horses, and uh, as to whether or not we're going south or we'll stay in Kentucky. And- try to uh, build up for the spring but uh, probably try to find somewhere south tampa somewhere around there uh, and figure it out from there and then try to be based kind of around kentucky for the most part other than that right right yeah kentucky's uh kentucky's purses are, are, are pretty attractive and um you know i had jason barkley on earlier and we were talking about turfway and how with churchill coming in and uh and renovating it and 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 Redoing the poly track and and uh, the purses when they when they bought it and, and they they announced all the changes. Obviously, there's been a whole lot of changes in the world since then, but the purses were going to be really really good. And uh, you know, it it I just wonder, um, you know, for some of the Kentucky outfits, if uh, if you'd consider maybe leave, even leaving horses some a string of horses there for the winter time. Yeah, we'll definitely uh, stay on how many we have and all that stuff. We'll we'll leave some in Kentucky for for Turfway, just cause, like you said, with uh, the surface being renovated and the purse money that'll be available there. We probably have some horses that'll fit better there too. So, uh, yeah, the whole they're making the whole circuit pretty strong here in Kentucky. So, Turfway was kind of the weak link for a little while, but now uh, with Churchill buying it, they seem to be putting some work into it and. Like, like you talked about, the purse structure's getting stronger to where there's really more money staying here than there is going south. So uh, they're, they're making it hard on you to leave. Yeah, the Kentucky circuit has, has really um, raised itself in stature over the last few years. And uh, 
and they're doing things properly. Um, it just seems uh, like at, from a horseman's point of view, they're, they're giving you real strong reasons to stay and, and not to leave. I mean, I know you're probably going to wind up with some turf horses that need to go south, and you might have a, you never know, might have a good three-year-old that might think about getting on the Triple Crown Trail that maybe you want to get more steady training in down south than you would up, up there. But, uh, yeah, it's certainly something to, to consider that it, it wasn't really something to consider a few years ago. Yeah, I, th- I think a lot of some of the bigger barns around here will, will at least leave uh, leave a string around. Uh, how many, I don't know. But uh, I think they'll at least have a presence through the winter. and It just kind of makes too much sense not to. Sure. Uh, when it's so expensive to go to Florida or, or to ship down south, and, and if you can stay home and run for more money, then. Um, yeah, no doubt. Do that. Tell me, what. When you when you went over from assistant to the boss, what was the biggest change um, that you found, other than you know having to pay people instead of getting paid? I think just uh, you're the last line of defense. So uh, you know when you're working for somebody, it doesn't always fall necessarily on you. So uh, going from you know, doing doing a job for somebody to doing it for yourself, and just not having that uh, other sounding board to lean on, or uh, kind of take some of the pressure off. You know, it's kind of all on you at that point. Right, right. How much um, how much do you do you rely on uh, on your dad or your uncle? Do you ask them for advice, or do you kind of just think that it's better just to figure things out on your own? Uh, no, I mean, I talk to my dad every day, so, uh, and I see my uncle Keenan, I see him every day, too, so, you know, I rely on him, I mean, I try to figure things out on my own, and learn from my own experiences, and there's certainly a lot of days that I try to remember what, what we did at my dad's, or whatever, how we did something, or how we handled the situation, but, uh, yeah, it's nice to have, uh, be able to make that phone call if I need to. Yeah, you you have uh, some pretty good resources <laughs> at at the, the touch of a button. Um, what are your goals? I mean, where do you see yourself? I, I know you just started. I mean, you're, you're what seven months in, so um, I'm not trying to uh, put you on the spot. But like, where do you see yourself in, in five years? Like, where do you want to be? Um, how big do you want to get? The uh, you know your dad. What's the biggest your dad ever got? You got like seventy, eighty horses. Yeah, the biggest amount, most of my horses we had there probably were around 60. Yeah. Kind of when all the two-year-olds would come in, and we still had, had kind of everybody was there at that point. So, But that was usually around 60 was the number, 60, 65. Uh, I think that's a pretty good number, as long as you can kind of keep things under two roofs and uh, where it's manageable. Right now, which is not an option right now anyway, but I don't have interest in having more than that right now i think kind of try to try to take my time build up slowly and uh hopefully one day that'll be an issue but in a dream scenario i'd love to have 50 60 horses and have uh 30 at keeneland and 30 at churchill long 25 at churchill whatever something like that you, mostly um the, the horses your barn's made up of now is, is young horses maidens and such 
Uh, yeah, for the most part, it's kind of a mix, but yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of younger horses. I'd say about eight, two year old, and six older horses. So let me ask you this question: You've seen racing from a, a different viewpoint than a lot of other people would have. So, from your own standpoint, um, and I know you've only been training for a brief of you know a brief time, but what is um, what is something that you think that that we can do better from the horseman standpoint? Not not exact, you know. I mean, we could. There's a lot of things we could do better um, that we have no control over, but. From from a, a trainer standpoint, where, where's a where, where would improvements be made? And, and you know, saying this as a young trainer, you don't have to name names or anything, obviously. But but um, like, where do you see uh, uh, the weaknesses in, in the racing game from a horseman standpoint? Uh, from my standpoint, I just I don't know if we really advertise ourselves well enough as a sport. You know, I think Fox Sports does a really good job. Uh, the Saratoga feed. I mean. I enjoy it if I'm not at the barn. I enjoy sitting around and watching the races from Saratoga all day. And I mean, maybe I know not everybody's going to enjoy that, but it 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 kind of gives storylines into each race, and uh, you know, there's a little bit more connection to watching each race versus just watching you know one stake uh, every two months or whatever. You know, it kind of lets you know a little bit more about all the people in the game and uh, and the horses themselves. And, gives you a little bit more of a connection to what's going on, and I think that's when you kind of uh, create more of a, an interest. And I just don't know if we do a good enough job of uh, putting racing out there because there's a lot of interesting people in the sport uh, and a lot of interesting horses, too. So I think uh, the more people know about it, I think the more they'd like it. I think that's a great answer, honestly. You know, one, one of the... Um kind of led off the show today saying that I'm going to have a bunch of young up-and-coming people on, on on today because I think that there's a lot of stories out there that aren't told and there are a lot of interesting people and there, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of focus on the top guys and, and you know, it's obvious why and they, they win a lot and uh, more than ever we see the same eight, nine guys in all the stake races so so much attention gets focused on those those people and sometimes being that we're in a world where horse racing doesn't literally doesn't have any daily beat coverage uh for newspapers anymore and when i was a kid um every newspaper had a racing writer i mean at least up in the you know in new york every, everyone did they all had uh, the the post the newsday the daily newsday they had multiple racing writers they were covering the races every day from the track they were writing about what what happened that day they were writing about uh, upcoming stakes news this and that and when we've we've lost that because I mean obviously the media business has changed a lot newspapers are barely holding on but. We tend, tend in this business to to really hyper focus on the same names over and over again, and I just think that you know guys like you, um, guys like Jason, um, you, you guys have something to say, and you're saying it from a, a unique standpoint in that you're um, you guys aren't old and jaded, and you you see things in a little different um, th- through a little different prism than than other people do. The people that usually get uh, their opinions and, and, and their stories heard. 
So I, that that's one of the reasons uh, I, I really like having guys like you on, and, and, and I'll certainly have you on again. Um, and uh, I, I really, you know, interested to hear, you know, how you how you view things because you're from a, a different generation than a lot of the people that control the story in racing, and uh, and sometimes I, I think the younger people really really have a lot to say and and uh, have a lot to say. At, that uh, that we need to listen to. Yeah, I think you know a lot of people my age, like they all, like a lot of my friends. I mean, I grew up with a lot of people that whose families are in the industry, but even my friends that are have no connection to it other than that they know me and know a few of my friends. They all love the races, like they love to come to the races, they love to watch the races. But uh, you know, you hear about it for this month or that month, and then you don't hear anything again. And, and th- even they don't fully understand that, you know, racing's going on year-round, and uh, there's a lot more than just the Triple Crown that you hear about, you know. So, uh, you know, and they, they enjoy following and they enjoy watching it. They just uh, they, they just wouldn't know as much about it just because, you know, it's not out there. I mean, you have to go find it to, to know about it right now. Yeah, yeah, the Triple Crown gets a, a, a tremendous amount of coverage, and um, that that certainly has has benefited the business in some ways. In some ways, it, it's kind of hurt the business because it's it's taken so much of the focus and it's made kind of an into an all or nothing thing. And, and you know, we have these big stake days now with uh, six, seven, eight graded stakes where uh, they in Saratoga especially they take away from um, they take away from the the other days and and you don't have that solid feature anymore and. I think when your dad won the test, I think that race was on a Thursday. I I, I want to say it was on a Thursday. I don't even think it was a weekend race at that point. But yeah. um, with, with Classy Kathy, not not. Uh, I think he's won the test a bunch of times. But but no. Well, they, I remember growing up, you know, you, even even this was just fifteen twenty years ago. All the big Saturdays at Saratoga, they were on ESPN. The Mother Goose at Belmont, and all those races were on ESPN. And uh, now I remember the Budweiser long shots of what they they do a five minute special on that stuff like that. And <laughs> yeah. nowadays, I mean, there's no sports going on basically from March to middle of May, and uh, you couldn't even get a headline on ESPN about horse racing or anything like that. And, yeah. Only if we do something bad, which is kind of yeah, sad, exactly. I mean, but... the only time. It reaches the end. Something bad happens, but and that, that's fine. But uh, like I said, I, just need, I think the more people know about it, and the more people see about it, the more inclined they are going to be to follow year round rather than just for those three races out of the year and maybe Breeders' Cup Day. <laughs> I have a funny story about the Budweiser long shot. I, I had an owner, and this was on Preakness Day, back when ESPN was still covering it. And he wanted me to enter in this filly we had in one of the undercard turf races because he wanted a table. And the only guys that got access to the table were people who entered in the, in the graded stake races. So we entered this filly who had run about, I think, like two weeks before at, at Churchill. Well, not, not with the intention of running. This guy literally was willing to pay the entry fee to get a table. So, <laughs> so um, I get a call about 8 o'clock in the morning. And it's from Randy Moss. And Randy's like, listen, uh, I really like your horse today. <laughs> I'm going to make her the Budweiser long shot. 
And I said, Randy, she's a real long shot because I'm looking at her right now and I'm looking at her, you know, I'm outside her stall and, and I'm in Louisville. <laughs> I'm not in Baltimore, so you better find somebody else for that race. And he's like, oh, man, I really liked your chances in here. And I told him the story. I said, "Man, the only reason we even entered was because because uh, um, the owner wanted a table." And now I feel stupid. <laughs> now we, we sh- I, I should have been looking at this race all along. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, those are th- those are the things that happen in, in racing. That behind the scenes, that sometimes it's hard to even admit. <laughs> but yeah. uh, but anyways, listen, Reef. Thank you for for giving us some of your time, and uh, we'll check back in later in the year and. Uh, Hopefully, um, you can knock off a couple winners coming up soon, and uh, all all the success. Uh, we wish you all the success in the world. All right, well, thank you. All right, everyone. That was Reeve McGahey, who just won a race at Ellis Park the other day, and uh, unfortunately didn't didn't do so well. He had one in, at Belterra, which used to be called River Downs. But um, a little known fact that. River Downs was Luke Kryposh's favorite track. I can't tell you how many times he tried to get me to go there on an off day, on a Tuesday. Come on, Chuck, let's go up there. We'll drink some beer and we'll bet on our aces. I'm like, Luke, I am not going to River Downs unless I absolutely positively have to go. But um, he was a great guy, a great announcer, and uh, um, his legacy lives on. Guys like Pete Aiello and and guys he mentored, but... uh, he was uh, he, he was something else, Luke Kryposh. He was uh, he was a real guy. Still miss him. Um, we have our, our third guest today on the line is uh, a female trainer. We started off with two male trainers, and and we have a, a female trainer um, who actually trains a horse that I own a little tiny piece of, and who worked for me for a long long time. Uh, Susan Ditter. Susan, are you with us? Yes, I am. So, how's your day been? Um, hot, but that's to be expected to be in South Florida. Can't get away from that. No, that's that's true. Um, you know, it's July in South Florida, so ninety is like a given. But um, you actually, um, you actually have a a. a <laughs> Talk about hippo things, and but you actually have a medical issue that uh, where you're you're like on a horse that's a non-sweater. And does this? I am. Yes. You know, you're you're a, uh, your, your asthma. You, you have you, it hasn't been giving you trouble with this weather. Uh, yes. In fact, the other day, I this is probably mine is more exercise induced. Um, but on a really humid day, I can struggle. But I will say it was oddly, oddly muggy down here the other day so bad that I could barely breathe without my mask on. And having my mask on made it ten times worse. So we have a trainer here that has one of those salt room trailers. And I asked him if I could go in with one of his horses for a session. And he laughed at me and said, come on over. And I actually had to go do salt therapy so I could breathe the other day. And it did work, right? It really did. And it worked um, for a good 48 hours. And I can feel it's a little tight again. But honestly, it was probably the best 48 hours I've had since. So I do know, future reference, if I have a horse 
that's having, you know, mucus or breathing issues due to weather or what have you because allergies, I will actually put them in a salt trailer if I can get it done. But it, it did work. Well, it's, it's good to know that uh, the things that work on horses work on us, too. That's right. And that, you know, you can actually try it yourself sometimes. <laughs> it just makes your hair turn. I, I would not suggest this in every case that we try on horses, so I will say that's probably not a high recommendation, but a salt trailer is pretty innocuous. That's true. So you grew up in Maryland. How did you get involved in, in horse racing? I grew up riding show horses my entire life. My first lessons with no racing family or anything like that was actually with Barry Gross, the daughter of Mel Gross, who trained at um, Keystone, which is now Philadelphia Park. Um, he trained there, but he lived in Maryland, so I took my first lessons with hit with her and with Matt McCarran's son, Greg. Ma- I mean, Greg McCarran's son, Matthew. And those were my very first lessons was with racetrack people, even though I had no concept of it. And then I grew up with Bird Moberly, riding show ponies with her. And when I went to Towson State in Baltimore, um, I needed to make some extra money, so I called up Bird's dad and said, could I come work on the weekend? And that was it, and I've been here ever since. So um, who you worked for, for a variety of trainers, um, outside of me, uh, could you just give a, a quick rundown of, of the guys that, that you worked for? Um, I learned to, I my first job rubbing horses was with Barkley Tag. I learned to gallop horses with Frank Whiteley in Camden, South Carolina. I was in California, and I used to breeze horses for, um, and be a gallop rider for, um, Wayne Lucas and Bob Baffert and Daryl Vienna. I came back east and I was an assistant trainer for Elliot Walden. And then I rode races for a couple years and then came to work for you. Then forayed out into Texas and branched out in other ways and came back to work for you. That's right. For 10 years. You couldn't get away. <laughs> Could not. And, and, and when you were in Texas, you worked uh, in the racing office, and you you were an outrider as well? Yes, I was an outrider at first. I'd been galloping for Brett Calhoun and Steve Asmussen, and I took a break um, to ride reining horses on a farm in the middle of Texas, and I just, I loved it, but it just didn't have the excitement, and a friend of mine, Bubba, that was the outrider at Texas, said, hey, I'm getting ready to retire, come back, I'm going to put you in my spot, so I came back to work as an outrider, and then I was chasing a loose horse, my saddle rolled, and I shattered my leg, so instead of just collecting workman's comp while I went through multiple surgeries, I talked to Eric Johnston, who was the racing secretary at the time, and I said, just put me in the office, because I'm I can't just sit and collect unemployment so or workman's comp, actually. So I went back to work in the racing office and uh, actually attended steward school and passed that in Louisiana. Um, just to get, I always figure the more you can learn and the more aspects you can see of everything, it just gives you a whole new 
outlook on everything. So you can kind of understand some of the other positions. You may not understand it fully, but you can understand sometimes why things are done or said the way that they are. Sure. So when you worked for me, you, you were at um, started at, at Parks, and then you went over to Penn National for a couple of years, and, and then um, Monmouth before you got down here. Um, what 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 track you you've been to a lot of tracks. You've been to California, New York, all the Pennsylvania, the Mid Atlantic, Florida, Texas, Louisiana. What's your favorite track? really hard to say because everyone um i like everyone for different things whether it be personal reasons or track surface i think one of the best track surfaces i've ever been over was colonial downs and believe it or not sam houston had an incredible track surface um and a wonderful turf course to go over um each track has been different, and each one holds so many different type of memories. It would be—it's honestly sad to say—I really cannot pick a favorite. What? Um, now you're based at Palm Meadows and year-round uh, on the the Gulfstream circuit. Um, would you? Um, what's the difference in your mind training at, uh, in the hot weather situation here? versus uh, up up in the East Coast and, and other places that, that you've trained in the summer? I think, one, we do have the luxury being down here between Gulfstream and Palmettos that we do get a bit, and you get the same at Monmouth, you do get a bit of a sea breeze, which can sometimes take the humidity down a level. But I think what really helps, it, it sounded, strange as it may sound, I think it helps that because it's a continuous heat, Yes, it does zap horses and people alike, but you actually get a bit more accustomed to it, whereas when you're running up north and, you know, you would have warm days and hot days and muggy days, but all of a sudden you get in those giant heat waves, which are kind of what we're used to on a daily basis down here, so we're already acclimated to it. That's our normal. That's when I think you see the horses and the staff struggle more with the heat up north because it's not consistent. And when everybody's finally getting used to it, then the heat breaks, and then it becomes a normal summer-type weather up there. Sure. So then everybody backs down, and then they get another heat wave, and that's when I think they get more of the heat strokes and cancellations due to heat because they are not used to it, whereas down here people hydrate more more trainers tend to back off once you get your horses fit. You can back off a little bit more down here to allow the horses to recoup from the weather. I mean, and, and you just kind of learn a lot, a bunch of different tricks. We learned a lot of little tricks down here to just help our horses cool down faster that we would never have really known up there because we didn't have to deal with it consistently enough. Right, right. Who was, uh, you, you galloped a lot of good horses. Who was uh, the best horse you've ever been on? In your, I mean, in your opinion, who was the best horse you've ever been on? Um, I'd have to say probably Gilded Time. He was he was so fast without even really knowing how fast he was. I have a really good clock in my head when I breathe horses, and I always have. And he was one that could get me. He got Gary Stevens, and you would literally be three seconds off on your breeze and not even know it on him. And you would just feel like you were galloping, yet you'd be going incredibly fast. 
And he was even better on the turf, even though I don't think he was ever allowed to try it. When we were getting him ready, we were going to try and try him for the three-year-old year. Mm-hmm. And we were watching because he was having foot issues and quarter cracks. And so they were, Santa Anita was letting us um, breeze him on the turf. And he outworked some of our top turf horses that we had just on cruise control, getting ready. And then he ended up popping that quarter crack where he wasn't able to go on until later in the year. They did stop on him to protect him, but he was unbelievable. Yeah, people forget uh, forget him, and, and his career was was short. But I think he he set um, set a, he set a track record at Monmouth uh, as a yes, two year old. Yeah, 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 as a two year old, which which is something that that you just don't see happen very much. I mean, he only made four starts or six starts, but he had four wins and and uh, and, and won the Breeders' Cup, and turned out to be a, a pretty good stallion. Um, he, he yeah, was, he uh, actually came back and, and ran the next year in the Breeders' Cup. Also, um, I had already left and I was working for Baffert at that time, but he came back the next year for Daryl and went in the Breeders' Cup the next year. I think they put him in the sprint or something. Yeah, like he, was, he was in the sprint. He finished uh, he, he finished third, third okay. that year, and then he ran back in the Malibu, and he didn't run any good, and that, and that was that was it for his... Uh... Yeah, he unfortunately had, had some soundness issues, but Daryl did a great job holding them together, but sometimes those big, heavy colts, train hard and aggressive. They're sometimes their own worst enemies. Um, I do have to say I did gallop distorted humor for Elliot Walden, and he was also a very nice, deceptive colt. He was really fast and a ton of personality and built like a little brick house, too. Yeah, he, he, and turned, he turned out to be a good sire. He turned too. out to be a, a great sire. I mean, his his, uh, his stallion career actually outshone his, his, uh, his racing career. But... Um, yeah, those were two two really good stallions, and Gilded Time turned out to be a pretty good stallion. He was, I think, leading stallion in New York for a couple of years, and and it's ironic that you talk about thinking he would be better on the grass because he he was a really strong grass influence for for a horse that was mostly known as as a sprinter. And it's funny, City Zip is is the same way, and that City Zip, I don't believe ever ran on the turf, and a lot of time in a lot of ways, some of City Zip's best runners have been turf milers. So, you know, you never know exactly what the breeding is, the genetic uh, capability that the horse passes down might not exactly be what the, what they did themselves. Did you ever... And sometimes you, people pigeonhole horses, too, so they never get to... You know, back in the day, everybody would try on everything. They would try short, long, turf, dirt, mud. I mean, they, they would just throw it out there to try, but now with so much money on the line... People are afraid to try, especially these Colts. They're afraid to go outside the box in case they don't win, which if they, you know, they tend to forget, what if they do win? And it just opens up that much more options and that much more options for breeding down the line. But people just pigeonhole too quickly, I think. Yeah, it, it seems like it's it's more of a game of specialists now. Or, and I think that someone has to do with the trainers. I think it has to do with a lot of the trainers with the good horses have so many good horses that they have horses for most every class, and they don't need to try too many different things because they've already got one in that race. And um, it's it, it's it's you know I harp on it all the time, so I'm sure no one wants to hear it. I don't want to take up your time talking about it, but uh, it, it's a big issue. Did uh, 
I don't think you did, but when we had Run Happy as a two-year-old, you never got on him, right? Finley used to get on him almost every day. Finley got on him. Yeah, he, I, at he the was... time, we, um, I was still having issues with my hand going numb, and we were so busy with the amount of horses that we had that you deemed it better for me to stay on the ground than to get on horses that summer. Yeah, I, I, I didn't it recall. It was after I came down here and got hold of a good chiropractor and was able to get myself fixed that I started getting back on horses. Actually, it was because of Zavarian I got back on horses. Zavarian, now, Zavarian's got to be one of your favorites. He was a horse that we claimed from Bill Mott for uh, 35000 for a guy named Jerry Oswit, who was a, a family friend of mine. And he, it, it's funny because now Jason Service is kind of infamous, but... Uh, Jason was Jerry's trainer, and Jason never won a race for Jerry. Jerry had never won a single race. He had horses for a few years. And um, we claimed uh, Xavier Xavarian for, for 35000 at Gulfstream, and um, we, did, we did really well with him. And that was a project that I remember talking to uh, Mike Welch about you, kind of taking that horse under your wing and spending a lot of extra time with him and 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 getting on him every day and, and kind of uh getting him where we wanted him to be and uh he you know rewarded us by by becoming a stake winner which was was great for uh for jerry too um you know i was really uh unfortunately jerry's passed uh passed away but uh but yeah he was a uh, he was he was I, he was your favorite man i, I I remember I, I think I had a jock breezing one day, and you got pissed off at me. <laughs> like, no, I'm breezing that horse. <laughs> but, um, well, he was one that we just had to remember. When we claimed him off Mott, Mott's guy said, you'll really like him. He's a professional, yada, yada. And Mott is a great horseman, but, you know, sometimes even getting from these really good horsemen, if you can get them and individualize a horse, you can sometimes just reap the benefits. And, our gallop riders were just treating him like any other horse, and he did have his issues. They were trying to take, you know, they were trying to stay slow with him and do this and do that, and he was just getting frustrated, and I got mad, and I said, I just looked at you, and I said, let me see if I can figure him out. And we just went back to the basics with him. We made him have fun again, and he kind of trained himself. I just let him pick what he wanted. Remember one day he was supposed to breeze, like two days later, and you were up in the stand watching because we had like three horses out there at the same time, and you know he was it, the track. It was one of those days where it was the perfect storm. The track was great. We had just a little bit of chill in the air, and he was just feeling spunky. And I was like, "Well, I guess I'm going to breeze him today," because he just was pulling me and wanted to go so bad, which wasn't like him. And I breezed five eighths, and I remember Brian Brian Walls looked over at you and he said, "I guess uh, you're breezing," and he goes. You were like, guess so. And, you know, had we waited two more days, we might have passed that window and the horse breeze great. And that was shortly before he won the stake. But, you know, he just, you know, you and I always had that theory. And, you know, you got it from the chief and from your other history. And I've always, I mean, I grew up riding. If you make the horse happy and you find what they like, sometimes you got to throw the plan out the window and just go by the mistake that happens. And, you know, you just find what makes them tick. Find what they like and don't like. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And I think that's what gets lost sometimes with the big outfits in that 
they simply don't have the time or people to individualize things too much. They, they've got so many horses that they've got to get out on a daily basis, and um, it, it's kind of a, a sifting f- for gold type situation. And and like you said, Belmont's a great horseman, but you know he, he's he he. This wasn't a priority. This horse, he was a claiming horse, and uh, he he wasn't going to have to have a lot of time to spend on trying to figure him out. And uh, you know, for us, winning a seventy-five thousand-dollar stake was a big deal. For them, it's just another—you know—it's nice, but it's not like anything, anything particularly special. And and I think that's something that a lot of owners, especially the smaller owners, really need to to understand that sometimes your horse is better off in a situation where they're getting more individual attention than to be in a quote-unquote program because it seems that most of the horses that come out of those programs and do well probably would have done well almost anywhere that they, that they would be in. And possibly could have done better somewhere else because they were more individualized and, True. and things done. And I think part of it, too, sadly, I think from a rider's perspective, I mean, we've had plenty of riders that we've had to get them out of that mindset that so many trainers don't want to hear what's wrong with their horses. They just want to hear, how'd he go? He went fine, boss. And that's all they want to hear. So a lot of these riders have just been trained unfortunately to forget to go with their feeling and i'm not saying that they should go out there and do what they want but they should be able to come back and honestly say hey look you know i think the horse needs to you know give him an easy day tomorrow or the horse liked this or he didn't like that or you know i remember one of the riders came back to you and i and said this one of the horses hates training in the mud like hates it and so the next time it poured down rain you and I made a point of watching it, and that horse went out there and just sulked. And by the time it came by us at the wire, you just yelled out, just jog and go home. And after that, we never trained that horse in the mud again unless it was consistently, because it is South Florida. You know, we didn't train that horse on a muddy day because they just didn't like it. So why? You go out there and you see the, the look on the horse's face like, ew, it's mud. Where yeah. the next day it's sunny and pretty again. So, you know, sometimes you needed to... Think outside the box. How many horses uh, do you currently have in your barn? I have five currently, and I have one that I am um, getting fit on a farm here um, that is going to come back in probably in another month once I just get a little more foundation under him. So six between here and the farm at the moment and waiting on a two-year-old to come down from up north. Right. So um, what's... uh What's a comfortable number for you? Like, what's your 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 short term goal? I won't I won't ask you your long term goal, but what's your short term goal and um, you know numbers wise and and what do you feel comfortable with? I I know I can do a relatively nice size stable because I've done it in the past, but at this point, with me wanting to be able to get on a fair amount and get a rider, I would I would say between ten and twelve is a really good number. Um, between what I have to pay out on payroll and staffing and to still really be able to pay attention to detail as much as I do. I mean, I'm in and out of the barn all the time. I check my horses. I know my horses. As it is now, I have the one guy, myself, and a freelance rider that helps. And, like, I do the legs on my own horses. I check everybody out. I... You know, I'm in and out all day long just kind of seeing what their mannerisms are. 
And I think if I got too big, I think I would lose some of that ability. And I like to definitely keep it very hands-on. So I, always, I have a very good idea on what's going on with them. To, to you, now you took over last July. So you've had, you've had about a year. What's the biggest difference in, in your life um, as a trainer versus the years you spent as an assistant trainer? I mean, what's the biggest change? Um, there's a couple. One is, as an assistant, especially like when I was with you and Elliot and stuff, when I had horses on my own, um, where the, you guys weren't around, it was like being a trainer, except for I had the ability of knowing I was getting a check every week. It might not have been as big as I would have liked, but, you know, whose checks are. But it was this nice, solid paycheck every week. Now, you know, I have owners that pay, and I'm very lucky about that, but it, you know, you don't have the solidity of knowing your numbers that you're going to have. Um, and then you have to have the worry about, okay, if something happens to a horse, how do I replace it? Whereas an assistant, that was always the trainer's end. Um, but I am more relaxed, especially now after I've been doing it um, for a while. I am more relaxed with my choices. I'm relaxed that I'm following my plan and my horse's plans, so I'm very relaxed. I'm very happy when I come in um, to the barn to see what's going on. Where some days when you're the assistant, it's a struggle for... It's, it's weird. It's the same struggles, but when it's your own, it sometimes just seems happier, more relaxed. I don't know. It sounds weird, but... <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of know what you mean. You know, trainers second-guess themselves as much as any other occupation in the world. I mean, what we do is, is essentially a series of guesses. And we're guessing that we should work a horse on this particular day. We're guessing that we should go this distance. We're guessing that this surface should be where we're at or, or this person who, who should be on or this equipment should be on. And, um, you know, this, this kind of feed. Or There's just so many there's so many variables that you know what we do so much is kind of educated guessing and and you it takes a while it, it took me a while to get comfortable um not second guessing because that that's something you need to do a lot and and um I, I think everyone in this business does that i think people who are handicappers uh, i mean there's nothing more frustrating than when when you you handicap a race and you come up with the winner and the winner pays twenty seven dollars and and you you know you don't make any money because you use them in exactas or trifectas or uh, pick threes and and some other long shot hit and and you wind up with nothing and uh, you know training is it's the same sometimes you, you you know you you think you're in the right spot and then you open the the, the raising form and it's like man this is a really hard race <laughs> yeah I, I know that I know that feeling and like you said you know you don't have that uh, the steady income and and that's something I think that is really um, a key factor, especially for smaller trainers and younger trainers, in that they um, they need that income. Um, they need to keep the payroll uh, going. The, the workman's comp expenses is is, is very expensive. Um, you know, especially for taxes. Taxes, uh, just all those things that you don't worry about when you're getting a paycheck. And and uh, and and Florida's 
the paperwork isn't really nearly as bad as some other states. So I, I remember when I was operating in, in a bunch of different states every year at tax time, we paid county tax for this place and state tax for this place. And, you, you know, you make one start. I, I ran a horse in in, uh, in California at, at Del Mar, Battle 1, he finished second. <laughs> Pat Valenswell comes up the rail. The guy never come up the rail in 30 years. He came up the rail that day and got beat up the rail. But nevertheless, those people in California pounded me for two years about nonsense. We were there literally 10 days. But because we earned money there, they were chasing me. The, the workman's comp people wanted uh, all kinds of paperwork and, and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, trainers, especially small trainers, they don't, we don't have human resources departments. And, and it just becomes uh, one of those duties that you have to do along with everything else that is you have to do. And uh, it's, uh, you know, listen, it's, every business has, has regulations and, and those kind of things. But... Uh, you know, the just having to deal with the licensing in, in the state, especially under the COVID uh, issues, where the office is open. Right the, the office is open, but they're not actually open. You know, they don't do anything. But uh, just don't go up the ramp. Chuck. I'm, I'm still I'm still bitter about that, and and that that was just uh, you know uncalled for. But uh, but I will say one thing too. I think I think our billing system is still on the antiquated side. You go into any other aspect of and and I've done a majority. I've done a lot of different aspects in the horses in the horse world, and even where I keep my horses on the farm, you pay for everything thirty days in advance. So you pay for everything up front because they have to incur the cost of feed and hay, and it's the same as on our end. But we pay on the back end. So if we, you know, it would be nice if new owners coming in they could get trained in the fact of being paid in front because then all the expenses are paid there's not a worry you have everything and the money is there yeah and it's comfortable and you can just go forward whereas now that's how some of these owners can get behind because they they get a bill at the beginning of the, the next month and you know like i said i'm very fortunate that our guys pay quickly and you know, my guys are all good about it. And, you know, as long as they pay by the 10th of the month, you're really good. But when they start staggering, then they're now getting into the next month, and now they're 45, 60 days behind. And people don't realize what that extra couple, you know, 2500 3000 can do to a small barn. And then if you're a bigger barn, you multiply one guy up four horses, that's, you know, 12000 that's a lot of money. It's the only business where the poor people give the rich people credit. Yeah, and it's just, you know, it's just a, you know, I, I can say all your incidentals, all your race fees, your blacksmith, vet bills, supplies, any of that can get rolled on to the next month because that hasn't been incurred in your first 30 days. That's all acceptable, and that happens in any of the horse show industry. Everybody pays up front, and then you get paid the next month if your horse has been shod that month. Then that rolls into the next month's bill. Yeah, yeah. But this is the only industry I know where it's on the back end of it. Yeah, we do we do a lot of things backwards. That's that's for sure. But yeah. um, who uh, who do you got coming up in the near future? That's going to be in the entries. 
I have, I'm looking at this weekend, I'm looking to run Noble Maria back. Um, she's come out of her race happy and, and raring to go. And then I have my new claim. I'm looking to race him back again. What's his um, name? What was that? What, what's his name? Robin Taken Charge. Robin Taken Charge. And he's kind of a cool horse. It's it's kind of fun when you get these the new claims because then you got to figure them out. Yes, absolutely. And it's fun when they have a fun personality. Some you know you never know what you're going to get when you drop in the box. Well. You know what I like about him? He's got speed, and he can run on the dirt and the turf. And down here in the, in the, in the summertime... And you never know what you're going to get from one race to the next. Literally one half hour to the next, weather-wise. Yeah, we're... That's uh, a good concept. It, it is, it's so bizarre how, how it can be perfectly sunny, and then five minutes later, it's it's like a, a hurricane, and then a you know, half hour later... Um, it's it's like nothing ever happened, and I you know people call me all the time, and they they'd seen a race at Gulfstream earlier, and it was sunny, and the track was fine, and they were on the turf, and then uh, they get distracted, or they they go to you know got to work or something like that, and then they call me later, and and, and it looks like looks like nighttime, you know, there's there's uh, clouds everywhere, and the the track is a sea of mud, and everything's off the turf, and it's like what happened? <laughs> Yeah, South Florida in Mother the summertime, yeah, we, we get uh, we get rain, and you know these days they run so many races on the turf. Uh, it's just uh, the, the way things are, and it's a, it's a trend that uh, isn't going to change. Um, it makes the cards so much more vulnerable to uh, to weather like that, and and there's nothing more frustrating when when uh, you have a horse really ready to go and. Uh, they're you know they're really just a turf horse, and you're actually at the races. You got in the race. You got the post position you want. The got jock you want, and uh, you know you're sitting there, and and uh, you know an hour before the race, it uh, here comes the black clouds, and off the race comes all you know off the off the turf, and there goes your chances. It's not. Yeah, fun. you never know what, what's coming down here. I mean, we had it rain five. The barn right next to me. Just one barn up. It rained for five minutes at their barn. I'm across the horse path from them, and it didn't rain at my barn. Five straight minutes. I've never seen that where it's like a complete wall. I Only in Florida have I ever seen anything like that. Well, you remember the day that it was muddy on the backside and it was dry on the front side. The track, it, it had literally rained on the other side of the track, but it, it hadn't rained on the other the front side. It's... I, I remember we had a horse breezing, and I said to the guy, why didn't you breeze? He goes, it's sloppy. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, on the other side, it's sloppy. And it, it literally rained on, on one side of the track and, and not the other, which is uh, which is it's just, yeah, and, you know, weather comes from all different directions here. You know, most places, the weather comes from the west. Here, it comes from the west. It comes from the north. It comes from the south. It comes from the east. It, it just, you never know where it's coming. But uh, But it doesn't snow here, so, you know, there's that. Hey, they have an occasional hour and a half where you get a flurry. Every <laughs> ten years or so, you do get that down here. Yeah, that that's uh, that's true. Uh, you know, every once in a while, and they, people freak out about uh, about you know when it gets to be fifty. And uh, like I said, it doesn't snow. And I know. I've gotten to the point where it gets below seventy, and I want to wear a hoodie. <laughs> 
you get a little too used to the heat and you're like, oh, it's cold and it's 70-something. Ah, uh, that is true. Well, listen, thank you for, for giving us some of your time today. and uh, Thank you for having me. We will uh, we'll be in touch. Thank you. Right, well. uh, that, that was uh, Susan Ditter. And um, we're, we're closing in on the end of the show. We got about uh, a little over 10 minutes to go. And we have our fourth trainer today. Um, this is a trainer that uh, has, a, has a, a famous last name, but I don't think he has a relation to the person with a uh, that made that name famous in the United States. Uh, with us, uh, Emmett Jolly. Emmett, are you there? Hey, Seth, how are you? Good, how are you? Great, thanks very much for having me on. Yes, sir. Let me ask you a question, Emmett. Um, yeah. How did you get your start in horse racing? Um, well, uh, growing up in Ireland, um, you know, there's, there's a, obviously it's a, it's a much more kind of a rural setting, so there was always horses around, um, and uh, you know, so I grew up show jumping and uh, hunting, um, and I had an uncle that, that uh, trained over there, um, and uh, that was kind of my, my first foot in, so uh, yeah, um, as a teenager, I'd I, I go and ride out for him, and, uh, and um, yeah, that was kind of my start. So, um, who was the first trainer that you worked for? Um, first trainer over here that I worked for was Graham Motion. Um, I, uh, um, I started, started with him in 2010. Um, before that, I, I'd uh, kind of been more in the breeding end. Um, after uh, graduating from, from college in, in Europe, um, I uh, took a job with Darley as a stallion man, um, and I, I traveled with them for, for three years. Um, and uh, I really loved my time in uh, in Kentucky. And I wanted to come back, um, so I took another job um, with uh, Hiddenbrook Farm, um, and then uh, and after about eighteen months there, um, the draw to the to the track was a little too strong. So um, yeah, I took a job with the with Graham in two thousand and ten, and it was a it was a really exciting time to be there. You know, we had um, Animal Kingdom was a three year old and. And uh, you know, we were the barn full of steak horses, and it was a it was a great time. Yeah, Graham is is a really great guy. He's um he's a stand up guy. He's a, he's an excellent horseman, and uh, he does the right thing. And and that's uh, oh, that, that there's something sure, to, there's yeah. something to be said for that. Definitely, uh, you know, I've, I've nothing but uh, fond memories of my time there. And you know, he he was always very gracious with his time, and uh, you know, uh, I learned a lot when I was there for sure. Um, when did you, uh, when did you officially go out on your own and, and start racing your own horses, your own horses? Um, it, it's been about 18 months. Um, I, uh, went out in uh, January of last year Um I started out down here um, and I'm kind of, I've been based here ever since. Down in the, and you're at Palm Meadows? Yes, correct. Right, right. Uh, how many horses do you, do you have now? I've got five at the moment. Um, we kind of, uh. Go up and down three, four, five, three, four, five. That, 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 that's, that's kind of where, where I'm at right now. But yeah, I've got five. Um, I've got uh, three maidens, um, and well, I, I four maids. One hasn't started yet, um, and uh, and then a, kind of an older, kind of youthful mare. Um, yeah, so that's where we're at. Are you? Uh, I know you had gotten hurt. Uh, you hurt your shoulder. Are you back riding yet, or no? I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, back in November, I. Uh, Took a spill and uh, dislocated my shoulder. Um, I was uh, 
you know, stuck on the ground for, for, for about three weeks um, and then uh, kind of got, got, got back into it. Um, you know, riding a little bit more cautiously now than, than, <laughs> than I was previously. And that one took more of an emotional hit than anything. But, um, yeah, I'm back at it. Do you feel getting on your horses kind of gives you a little bit of an advantage and that you, you, you're getting the information from the horse firsthand instead of secondhand through a rider's uh, input? For sure, yeah. You, you know, um, I, I, on the flip side, you know, you can you can see a lot from the grandstand too. You know, you know, um, you can see how the horse is traveling versus feeling it. Um, but I think there's a, there's a huge advantage to being able to get on them yourself. Um, you, you know, you, especially when you're getting on them every day, and you know, you, you you can tell a little difference from one day to the next, or you know, if they're if they're feeling really great one day versus you know they're having a bad day. Um, you know, and you you can pick up on that when you're you know, when you have that relationship with them, and uh, yeah, I think there's, there's a big advantage to it for sure. Yeah, do you? Um, is there a certain type of horse do you prefer? Do you prefer turf horses over dirt horses or, or uh, sprinters? Um, um, I, I, I enjoy the turf horses. Yeah, um, you know, there's uh, obviously a, a little bit. You know, they have a. A longer lifespan, um, and there, there isn't so much of a you know of, of a push to get to you know make them as a, a three you know that they, they can keep going. Um, but uh, you know, I, I'm not against having any type of horse really. Um, but uh, you know, I, I really do do enjoy the turf horses. Yeah. Do you did the being an uh, an assistant trainer? I talked to a couple other trainers. We had a three trainers on before you and and um one of the things that kind of the theme is that um when you're an assistant trainer you can pay attention to the horses 100 percent because you don't have all the other duties that a, a trainer has to has to um has to incur do you find yourself sometimes um getting caught up in in the, the business of racing more, more than the training of the horses um, you know, not so much at this point, you know, because I, I, I am smaller, um, so you know, you know, it, it, it's it's very manageable. Um, I could see how you know if you had a much bigger string, you know, and and very demanding owners, um, you know, how, how that could you know, you know, definitely take away from it, um, and you know, um, add another dynamic to it, um, you know, you know, and obviously, you know, for trainers in that position i mean having good assistance is, is vital you know there's no way to do it otherwise you know you have to have good people on the ground you know taking care of business for you sure. uh, but at this point in time um you know i, I kind of I have a handle on it well you would think uh i mean i would think that um graham would be your 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 greatest uh training influence absolutely yeah you know i've I worked for, for some other really really good people um Along the line, you know, Eddie Keneally, I learned a lot from, um, and uh, you know, and some others. Um, but uh, yeah, you, you know, Graham is obviously very high profile, and, and uh, you know, he, he, he does everything right. And uh, you know, it, it was a real honor to work for him. You know, Graham sent me three horses um, two it was two falls ago that um, the the best owners in the game the. Um, Isabel Di Tommaso and, and Hope Jones, her sister, who, who they're just they're, they're just class personified. And uh, he had these three horses, and he just simply couldn't get 
get them raised. There was so much rain up in in the Mid-Atlantic where he was, and and he sent them down to me. You know, just said, I'm sending you these three horses if you if you want to take them. And uh, you know, I, I had trained I had trained the horses for for the the, the ladies as well. And um, you know, kind of gave me everything that uh, they'd been doing, and and uh, you know, that's something that, that, that this doesn't happen very much anymore. And uh, no, for sure. For you know, sure. guys, guys send the uh, you know they'll, they'll send them somewhere with with an assistant or a groom, and uh, they they won't they won't they, they feel like they don't want to give anyone a foothold in, in in their business. But Graham was uh, was very gracious, and uh, I mean, honestly, it was the best thing for those horses. It was the best thing for the owner was to get him out of that the place uh, where he was and um i can't say that we had a tremendous deal you know great deal of success with the horses but it it was the right move to make and and it just uh it struck me that they were as as kind as could be and and as helpful as could be and 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 rooted for the horses to do well and and, uh not everybody in this business uh is is going to root for you to do well a lot of times uh people are going to root for you to to not do so well but um but he's a, a first class guy um what what are your um, what are your goals like? Wh- where do you see uh, if you could draw up um, a plan for the next five ten years? Wh- where would you like to be? Would uh, what kind of numbers? Uh, yeah, uh, obviously, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to expand um, quite a lot. You know, a fair amount from where I'm at. Um, you know, it would be nice to have a you know a a barn that was worthy of, of traveling with um, either to, you know, Kentucky or um, or somewhere else. Um, but, yeah, you know, if, if I could get to, you know, 30, 45 number um, and, uh, you know, obviously just, just winning races is, is what it's all about. Um, you know, it, it, the uh, the big high-profile races are, you know, are, are obviously the, the the end goal, but, but – you know, just just being competitive and, and, and winning. You know, you, you you get a buzz out of it every, every time, whether it's a a ten maiden or or or, or a big race. That that's for sure. Winning winning is is uh, it's a feeling that's hard to capture in in, in, in sure. most other businesses. It's interesting. I had, I had four trainers on, all, all you know, young trainers just starting out, and I asked the same question to all four of you, and every one of you gave me a completely different number. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that just kind of goes to show you how, how different uh, different people's philosophies, different people's views. And, and um, uh, the first uh, Jason Barkley was on there, and Jason's number was a hundred. He, he thought a uh, hundred was a good number. Uh, Reeve McGahey was on, and he, he he was thinking his ideal number would be right around sixty. Uh, Susan Ditter was on directly before you, and and, and she was thinking. She'd like about twelve, and and then you you came with the thirty to forty. So it's it's uh, it's kind of interesting to me that um, that everybody's came with a uh, you know came with a different number, and, and uh, I, I hope uh, I, I honestly you're all good people and, and you're good trainers, and, and I've I've watched you guys from afar, and then your horses look good, and uh, I wouldn't have you on if if I didn't uh, if I didn't think you you were a good horseman and. Uh, you deserved a, a little bit of a voice, um, and we're running we're running low on time. We only have about uh, about twenty seconds. But Emmett, I, I really want to thank you for giving me some time today and, and uh, telling people what's going on with you. And uh, hopefully, we'll we'll be able to have you back on uh, after you win a bunch of races. Absolutely, that, that sounds great. Yeah, yeah. Thank you again for the for the opportunity. I really appreciate it, job. Thank you. That was Emmett Jolly. And we will see you next week. 
This is the Going in Circles podcast, hosted by Horseman Chuck Simon. To become a sponsor, to suggest topics, or for questions, email goingincirclespodcast at gmail.com and log on to our Facebook page, Going in Circles Podcast.